0: Hi, course takers. Welcome to The Course. I'm George Qureshi, and I'll be your host today as we hear from Professor Ken Pomerant from the Department of History. Professor Pomerantz has a fascinating story. His parents were survivors of the Holocaust, and he originally thought he wanted to study European history, but by chance, and at the very last minute, he decided to change his focus to Chinese history, even though he didn't speak the language. We'll get into all of that, as well as his career path and how he ended up in his position today at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Professor Pomerantz. Welcome to the course. I wonder if you could start by telling me what you do.
1: I'm a professor of history and East Asian languages and civilizations at the University of Chicago taught for over 20 years at the University of California before I moved here in 2012. And I think we're here, we're talking to people about how they wound up as academics. Cause it's, you know, it's not the obvious career for most people, right? We start out wanting to be firemen or whatever. Um, and particularly for people like me who grew up in Households where there weren't people with those kinds of careers it's it's kind of a strange story, but lots of us, it turns out have strange stories
0: that's right and and yet your background and your family situation did influence your eventual career choice in sort of a, a twisted mangled sort of pathway um could you could you tell me about that? Yeah, so
1: my parents
0: were both refugees from Nazi Germany left
1: when they were well both of them left when they were fourteen. My mother went to England, my father went to Uruguay. Um, both of them then wound up in the United States after the war, um, and they met at Jones Beach in New York. <laughs> it was one Sunday, um, and they were married a couple of years later. So neither of them finished high school, and you know my father worked as a printer for a small, um, actually, German-language newspaper, Um, My mother, once I was about nine, 10 years old, she started going back to work as a secretary. So neither of them had a lot of formal education. Um, And the part of New York city where we lived, you know, had a lot of people like that. A lot of people whose lives had been disrupted in one way or another by the many disasters of the mid 20th century. As I said, not full of people who had gone to elite universities, certainly, and in most cases not to universities at all, but, you know, a subway ride from Manhattan and connected to a big world in all sorts of ways. And I think that sparked a lot of interest in in all sorts of things. I mean, I started out as a kid more interested in the sciences, but also had some inspiring teachers that made me think, yeah, you know, this is, I want to understand how the the world kind of crashes through people's lives and reformulates them. I want to understand what the chances are for good collective decision making, which inevitably involves understanding how you got to where you are.
0: And there are ways to do it. I, I guess once you settled on, you know, history as a field of study, and I'd love to, I'd love to just have you, you know, tell me briefly how, how you came to that decision. Um, you were initially focusing on, on Europe and, and Germany in particular.
1: Yeah, that's right on both counts. So
0: I settled on history.
1: I mean, I was equally interested in the sciences when I was in high school. Um, and junior year of high school, there was a Saturday morning physics program at Columbia that I attended. And it was also full of kids who had a leg up on me. And it was pretty clear to me that, you know, I was perfectly fine at this but I wasn't outstanding. Then that following summer, I got into this summer program run by an organization called Telluride Association, which I had never heard of. In those days, when you took the PSAT tests, there was a little box you could check that said Telluride Association. The only thing I had ever heard of connected to Telluride was that I knew there was a a ski town Hmm. called Telluride in the Colorado mountains, I thought maybe it's some sort of you know fancy summer camp or something. I checked the box. What the heck? And it turned out that they ran these summer programs in the humanities at Cornell. And if you scored above a certain level on the standardized test, they sent you an application. I filled
0: out the application. I got in. So can I ask, would you have gotten that application if you had not ticked that box? No. I just, I'm just struck by all the contingencies in your life and like the, the lives of the people you, you are descended from that led you to this. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> to, to Con- path. Contingency is a big theme, um, and yet
1: I continue to be the kind of historian who keeps looking for structure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I ticked the box. I filled out the application. They liked the application. I wound up going to the program, which was a program basically in political theory with two professors from Kenyon College, so 16 other high school kids from all around the country doing a program in literature. And we lived together, you know, the guys in one house, the women in another, for six weeks. And the program changed my life, Um, partly just because it made me think, not only was this really exciting, but I could do it. You know, and there were these people there who did come from the kinds of families where, you know, there was a professor in the family or there was a high, you know, very high-powered professional of some other sort in the family. And I could keep up with them. And I then wound up going to college at Cornell because this same organization sponsored a kind of scholarship house. And then because of that and because of a particular group of inspiring teachers, um, I began to sort of focus on history. The kind of, I guess, natural thing for somebody like me, given where I'd come from and what my life had been like, was to think about you know, modern European history as sort of the center of attention. That's what I did. I had learned some French in high school. I learned some German in college. Um, it seemed like the kind of inevitable path almost. Well,
0: do you think it was, you know, you say that, but do you think it was an attempt to understand what had happened to your family? Oh, certainly that was part of it, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, no question. And did, it, did, did you think that helped? Did it work?
1: Um, it certainly gave me a framework to understand it. I mean, my my mother never really talked much about her experience until pretty late in her life. Um, which was unfortunate in some ways, but it also meant that by the time she did want to talk about it, I knew enough that I had a frame to fit it into. She could tell me the personal stories, but I had a sense of you know, the bigger story that was out there.
0: I wonder what you think you understood about all of that, given your, your academic uh, training, um, that they may not have sort of fully grasped and what they understood about it, that maybe all the academic training in the world could not have helped you understand. You
1: know, for my mother in particular, who lost both her parents, there was an, a kind of emotional need for an absolute black and white story that, you know, a, with everything else that had happened, right, with all the politics, et cetera, right? She was a 14-year-old girl who got on a train because her parents thought it wasn't safe for her to stay in the country and never saw her parents again. Hmm. And I think there were ways in which, you know, some of the complicated, extremely difficult decisions certain people made that fall in between total resistance and total collaboration were hard for her to grapple with because for her the story was so totally black and white, right? And that the things that you see when you pull back and you look at the big history and what did it mean to be in order to combat this enormous evil, to be collaborating with Stalinist Russia, right? What did it mean to be turning a blind eye to all sorts of abuses that were going on elsewhere, right? That that was just not something that it was important for her to grapple with. Those were things that it was important for me to grapple with as an American, and particularly as an American growing up in a post-Vietnam generation. Um, So I think there were things of that sort that were hard for her in particular to think about.
0: Can can we, can we move it along a little bit to your current field of study um, and and sort of how you arrived there? Um, It seems like quite a leap from the outside, but I, I imagine that there is some internal logic that makes sense to you.
1: There's some internal logic, though maybe less than you'd think. So The other thing I did a lot of in college was courses related to U.S. foreign policy. And I think you can see the logic of that um, from what I've told you. And it also happened that Cornell had a really, really outstanding historian of U.S. foreign policy, a guy named Walter Lefebvre, who was my undergraduate faculty advisor and just really just an extraordinary guy in all sorts of ways. Um, anyway, my senior year, I wound up wanting to do a senior thesis that had something to do with how the U.S. wound up in Vietnam. And as I did this, it occurred to me that you know part of what was missing in my education was that not only did I have no sense of Vietnam's own internal history, but I didn't have a sense of that for any society in Asia. And that, you know, given that Asia is two thirds of the world, this seemed like a big gap. And I looked around and there was both, I mean, here's contingency again. There was both a course in India with a professor who had a very good reputation and a course on Chinese history with a professor who had a really good reputation. Um, They were both upper level courses that were you were supposed to have prerequisites for. it. I didn't have the prerequisites for either. But I decided, what the heck, I'll go talk to the professors. They might let me in. The professor teaching the India course said no. The professor teaching the China course said, yeah, you know, I'm not going to cut you any slack, but if you want to give it a try, go for it. And I wound up working really, really hard. And it was one of the most fascinating courses I'd ever taken. And as the term went on, I more and more started thinking, you know, you like this so much. You find it so interesting. Maybe this is what you should be studying. So it was a fall term course. It ended in December. And sometime in probably February, I went to see the professor in the course and said, you know, I have this crackpot idea that I think maybe I found what you were doing so interesting that I'd like to study China. And he sort of looked at me and he said, okay, here's a plan. I'm going to give you a list of 15 books. If you read these books in the spring and summer, outside the context of a course, when nobody's giving you a grade for it, it probably means you're genuinely interested. It would also get you at least a significant part of the way caught up on what you would have learned if you'd done an Asian studies concentration as an undergrad. And then just by luck, it turns out all the places that you've applied for grad school happen to have really good historians of China as well. So if you still feel that way in the fall, go knock on the person's door. And so I got to Yale um, with an application that said I wanted to do German and French history. Um, But I went and knocked on Jonathan Spence's door, um, who had actually been the advisor of Professor Cochran, the guy I studied with at Cornell, and told him the story. And he sort of looked at me and said, well, you know, I teach one graduate course for which you don't need the language. Why don't you take that course, and if you seem to be doing well enough in it, then we can have another conversation, and maybe we can find some money for a summer scholarship so you can start cramming the language. And that's more or less what happened. And, you know, I'd always had a pretty strong interest both in economic development and in environment, and so an awful lot of the work I wound up doing as a historian of China has been either economic history or environmental history or some combination thereof. And so that, of course, as it turns out, landed me in you know, exactly the right place, right? Because there aren't that many changes bigger over the last few decades than what's happened in the Chinese economy and what's happening in the global environment partly because of the development of the Chinese
0: economy. You studied under Jonathan Spence who it, you mm-hmm. know was was regarded as sort of I think a giant in that field, maybe the giant. You 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 would know mm-hmm. better. And then and then you sort of specialized, you know, granted your specialties are massive, right? Fields mm-hmm. unto themselves. But how does it affect your choices for your career path as an academic to be studying under someone who is sort of seen as like the, you know, <laughs> the the general expert on a, on a, on a, on a region and a, and a period that spans, you know, spans five, 600 years. Um, is it intimidating to, to, to do that? Or and do you feel like you need to find your niche that, you know, that you can't sort of just become the, the generalist that, that that person is. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that from a, from a, from a almost a career perspective.
1: Yeah. So it's funny you should ask, cause that was actually one of the things I wound up writing about when I wrote a sort of commemoration of Jonathan after he died in December. Um, Jonathan was one of those wonderful advisors who kind of said, you know, you don't need to try to be me. And I think, you know, his, on the one hand, his achievements were so enormous that it was impossible not to be somewhat intimidated. On the other hand, there was also something a little bit freeing about it because you figured out pretty fast You know, I don't know what the word genius really means, but if it means something, Jonathan was a genius. And so you figured out pretty fast, hey, I'm not a genius. I cannot be Jonathan. So I can be somebody else, right? And so, you know, I think one of the things that's enormously to Jonathan's credit, if you go back and look at the list of his PhDs, is we just worked on all sorts of stuff. And he either genuinely was interested in it all or was really good at faking. I think he was genuinely interested in it all. Um, And we wound up doing stuff, you know, ranging from number crunching social and economic history to, you know, art and philosophy. And, you know, he wanted to make sure that you had a sense of how it fitted to a big picture. He didn't want you to just be obsessed with your little piece of the pick, piece of the puzzle. But he was perfectly happy to let you pick your piece of the puzzle.
0: I am. Um... <laughs> I'm just so fascinated by, by all of, all this whole story. Um, and so I'm going to try to rein in uh, my curiosity and fo- focus a little bit on I think the nuts and bolts of choosing a career in academia, and and particularly you know your path at the University of Chicago, and one thing that that uh, you know sort of a, a thread that emerged in some of the um, the questions we asked you ahead of this conversation mm-hmm. was I don't know if I would call it the trade offs between um, mm-hmm. you know a life in academia you know between sort of the freedom to pursue you mm-hmm. know just your curiosity and some of the peculiarities of actually making a living and, you know, (laughs) living life. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I'd start with
1: is I think when undergraduates come to me saying they're thinking about a career in academia, I think they, and many times also their parents, are nervous about the same things that I and my parents were nervous about, which was basically the job market is terrible. Um, So there's this fear that either you're just never going to get a job or that you're going to get a job and it's going to pay so badly that you're going to be struggling your whole life. And I guess what I'd say is that those things are real, but they're the wrong things to be scared of because on the way to a PhD, you're going to acquire skills and credentials that will enable you to move into something else. But it's also true that the overall unemployment rate among humanities and social science PhDs is minimal, right? You're going to find something. You're not going to go hungry. That's, that was what certainly my parents were afraid of for me. And I think in the end, that's the wrong thing to be afraid of. But the thing about academia is it's a terribly inflexible job market, in part because it is small. And you have to really think about how much you're willing to trade off
0: the other things in your life. Would would a way to describe it be choosing the type of freedom that you want in your life?
1: Yeah, that's that's actually a good way to think about it, right? Uh So on a day-to-day basis, there's this enormous freedom as an academic and freedom that starts on day one, right? You don't have to wait until you're a partner in your firm or whatever, but you give up You give up an awful lot of control. Yeah. And the thing that I would emphasize, particularly to the sort of young person who's ambitious and self confident, is you give up that control no matter how good you are. Mm. Right. It's not the case that, hey, you know, if I just work harder than anybody else, I will have all the choices.
0: This leads me, Professor Pomerantz, to a couple of sort of rapid fire questions, if you will. if we could do a, like a speed round. Okay. <laughs> uh, and you sort of touched on this, but what would your advice be, um, for people who are considering entering your field? And, and I guess let's, let's interpret that as, um, teaching, maybe, uh, teaching, um, at a college level, uh, perhaps teaching history, um, maybe not teaching Chinese history. Very specific. Yeah. yeah. I guess I would say that the,
1: the loss of flexibility, and the sacrifice of income relative to other professions, because there certainly is some sacrifice of income, is worth it if you really love it. If you don't really love it, you should do it. But you should, if you think you do, give it a try. And then there's no disgrace. You know, Some I've had students who went into the classroom for the first time as a, te- as a teacher and said, you know, I just found out I don't love this.
0: Yeah. Okay. If you could live three more lifetimes, what are the three fields of history that you would love to devote your life to? Um, and what are what is the other job you would like to do if you had another chance at this that's that's totally different from academia? I guess, you know, there's enough of an idealist in me that I think, you know, if I
1: had another life to live, I'd like to be setting up medical clinics somewhere in the third world or oh, yeah. doing something, you know, I'd like to be Paul Farmer. I guess that's not an alternative to being an academic because he was, <laughs> was at Harvard Medical School. But I'd love to be doing that kind of you know, deeply, deeply meaningful work.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. And then the, the three the three fields of, of historical study that you would like to focus on, if you, if you could. That's a little tougher. Something in history of science. Um,
1: I think I was part of that generation of historians who said, you know, we wanted to do history from the bottom up. We wanted to know, you know, what what the big changes were like for peasants and artisans and so forth. And we wanted to get away from, we wanted to get away from politicians and Kings and so forth. And I feel fine about that. But, you know, if you want to think about something that's been
0: truly
1: world transforming science, you know, both for better and for worse has just made our world so radically different
0: and understanding how it has really actually worked what In a sentence, what is the thing, the lesson you would like Americans to understand from Chinese history? And what is the lesson from American history that you would like Chinese people to understand? <laughs> I'm asking you the really easy ones, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so I
1: think from Chinese history, I'd like Americans to get a sense of what it's like to want A lot of the fruits especially the material fruits of modernity in a context where the population to resource ratios are just so much less favorable right i'd also like people if if i get two (laughs) i'll give you two (laughs) um i'd like them to think about what a society that has never really been monotheistic how that makes things different whether you're a believer or not our, the West, and here I can include the Muslim world too, right, has been so extraordinarily shaped in all kinds of ways by the notion that there's one God. We should fight over what, who that God is, but that there is one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but there's this huge chunk of the world that never bought that. Right.
0: And, and vice versa? What, what, what is the thing that you think maybe would be, would be valuable for, you know, for Chinese people to, to understand from American history? Um, If if I can be so, you know, and and the the history there is so much longer, maybe I I imagine that, you know, most of the lessons we've learned from our history have at some point been (laughs) maybe maybe exhibited in in Chinese history. Yeah, I guess I think it would be really valuable
1: for Chinese people to think about what the story of the United States means for A, the possibilities for self-government. And B, both the possibilities and limitations for forging a sort of functioning society without trying to impose a unitary culture. I mean, obviously, many times in the United States, people have tried to impose a unitary culture, but they usually haven't succeeded. Um, And, you know, both the sort of, if I can say so, you know, the, Inspiring part of the American story, which is you know very much, and you know your my own background is showing, but you know, give me your tired, your poor, right? The the immigrant story, and the most painful part of our story, which is the story of all those involuntary immigrants, and the ways in which we never have come to to terms with what slavery meant and what racial discrimination continues to mean, that. You know, it it does no good to say, aha, I have identified a, a root injustice. Therefore, you know, throw this society on the trash heap of history. That doesn't make much sense. But nor does it make much sense to say, oh, well, there's so much good here. You know, we, we should just not worry about this little blemish because hmm. it's not a little blemish. But therefore, what it means to have a kind of, you know, Let's, let's call it patriotism without nationalism, hmm. um, which I think we're still struggling to
0: create. Thank you, Professor Pomerantz, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the others. You can find out more about the University of Chicago at uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong at uchicago.hk. See you around.